Well, I want to um, read you one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite movies to start off with. This is in the first of the three Lord of the Ring trilogy, the, the three movies from that. And it, it's a scene where Frodo, this little hobbit that's been tasked with carrying this ring that represents evil and power and everything that's wrong with Middle Earth, right? And he's tasked with carrying this ring and it starts out kind of as this exciting adventure. He's curious, he's kind of eager, and it gets about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through, and it's just taking its toll on him. And he has this conversation with Gandalf, who's this good wizard. And they're in this cave together, and here's what Frodo the Hobbit says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Wise Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Now we live in an interesting time in history, in my opinion. And I have a feeling that there's a sense that every generation would sort of feel that way. But I think there are some things that are a little bit unique about what's happening culturally in our world and in our country. And even right here in Middle Tennessee, as insulated and isolated sometimes as we may feel we are to some of the broader events. But one of the ways that I feel like our culture is changing is the idea that authority is now suddenly old-fashioned and oppressive and even dangerous, and particularly religious authority. Now, I had a conversation with someone between services who's a little older than me, and she was explaining, you know what, when I was your age, the same thing was happening. And this was during the 1960s, and she talked about this younger generation kind of rebelling against authority in a very outward way. And it kind of struck me, I thought, you know, I, I, it's probably true that there's a sense of this tension with authority through every generation as another generation comes to terms with what it means to be under authority, whether that's government, whether that's um, uh, God's authority, all forms of authority. But I think it feels particularly acute to me because I believe, I sense that I'm right in the middle between two v ways of viewing the world, even Christian ways of viewing the world. So let me explain what I mean. I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'll be 40 later this year. And when I think about my older Christian friends, most of them, I'm going to use a broad, broad stroke generalization, so forgive me for this. But most of them have a lot of angst and fear and concern about what they're seeing culturally now. And I'm old enough where I get that. Like, I'm like, yeah, like, I, I get it. I understand. I, I, can, I can see that. Now, I want to tell you a little bit more about some of the conversations that I've had with some of my older Christian friends. There's a lot of worry. There's sometimes some hand wringing. And not always, but sometimes what you sense is you just sense some fear. What is going on with our culture? What's going on with this generation? What, what, what's happening to us, our country, our government, our people, our cities, our culture? And, and I, I get that. Like, like I said, I, I have a lot of empathy and sympathy when I'm stepping in their shoes of how they're viewing things. And I think they're right in a lot of ways. 
However, I also think some of my older Christian friends can sort of tend toward fear in an unhealthy way, the kind of fear that would lead them to isolation and lack of engagement, or the kind of fear that would lead them to what I would say is probably the wrong type of engagement, kind of an angry militant, we're going to take back the culture, doggone it, kind of response. Now, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not saying don't be active, don't get involved. In fact, I, I, I'm saying the opposite of that. But I wonder what the best way is for us to engage with a culture that we're afraid is losing its moorings. Now, I want to speak about my younger Christian friends because I told you I'm kind of, I feel like I'm in the little middle a little bit as a 40-year-old. I got one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat. No, whatever the expression goes, I got my feet in different places. And uh, here's, here's what I'm hearing from a lot of my younger Christian friends. They're hearing things like, oh, I just can't stand sort of the rigid dogmatism of my elders. And I kind of understand that too. Like that I, I, I understand where they're coming from. There's a sense that life doesn't exactly work that way all the time. My younger Christian friends would say they are uncomfortable and not satisfied with dogmatic black and white beliefs. They would also, they wouldn't say this, but what I believe is true about them is they're a little bit dismissive of anything that's not new, anything that's old. And I think that's very dangerous to have that approach, by the way. But the result for my, most of my younger Christian friends is sort of a frustration, right? And, and there's this sense of confusion and hesitancy. They don't know how to engage. They don't feel like they should engage. There's a sense that they don't feel like the ground they're standing on is really solid enough for them to speak into anything in our culture. What that leads them to also is a lack of engagement, or maybe the wrong kind of engagement. Here's what they both have in common, my older Christian friends, my younger Christian friends, and my, my own self. At its core, I think there's a lack of faith, a lack of trust. Let me explain what I mean. Could there be a third way? Here's what a third way might look like, not Fear on the one hand, not disillusionment on the other hand, but humble submission to God's authority and God's sovereignty. He knows what he's doing. He knows where we are in history. He is still firmly in control, but yes, he is in control. Submission, if you think about it, is a result of faith, but it also produces faith. And faith allows for the kind of winsome, gospel-centered engagement that I think we need. Not angry, militant engagement, but not just throw our hands up in the air either and say, well, I don't know. How do we get there? And with all of that in mind, see, that's just prologue. I, I want to come to the, the question that this morning is all about. And is the Bible authoritative? Authoritative, rather. If our generation and our culture, and by the way, I don't think we can totally just talk about culture like they're out there. I think they're part of us too. We're part of culture. It's like the, the water that we swim in. It's part of who we are as well. We tend to question authority. We tend to push back on authority. There's a part of us, and we'll talk about that, that doesn't like being told what to think, how to act, what we can do, what we can't do. That's just part of what it means to be a fallen human being, I believe. So to answer any question of authority, I think we have to start with God. 
And let me explain why we have to start with God. You know, philosophers would tell you there's a basic question that's sort of the root of all other philosophical questions, and the question is this. Why is there something instead of nothing? Now, you may take for granted, hey, well, there's something because nothing because God, but a lot of people wouldn't answer the question that way, right? There's really only two ways you can answer that question. Why is there something instead of nothing? There's the answer that we would hold to, that there is an intelligent, personal, creative being we call God that put it here for his purposes, for his glory. There's another answer to that question that a lot of people would say, well, why is there something instead of nothing? Well, it just is, you know, it was this, this accident of, of something happened where the right environment, the right time, the right chemicals, the right, it just came together and it happened. And essentially, it was just sort of an accident. There was nothing intelligent, no creator behind it all. Those are the two paths that you can take. Now, I want us, for the sake of this sermon, this is going to sound like a funny thing to say in a church, but I want us to assume today that God is and that God created. Not a big step for most, most of us. Maybe for some of you, it is. And that's okay. We're super glad you're here, by the way. Would you assume this with us for this morning at least? So assuming that God is, then here's what is true. Assuming that God is, he has supreme and complete authority over your life. Now, you may not like that. You may question, well, I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't know. That just sounds too whatever, too religious, too oppressive, maybe you might be thinking. But if God created all of this, then he owns it. He has authority over it. So if you can take that logical step with me to say, assuming God, then he has authority over everything, then the question becomes, does God actively communicate and express that authority? If so, how and where? More specifically, how closely is the Bible connected? to God exercising his authority. Another way you might ask the question is, what is God's relationship to the words in this book? Or how close are the words of the Bible to God's own voice? Is what the Bible says what God says? Because if it is, the Bible has authority because God has authority. If it isn't, there's not a lot of authority in this book. No matter how wonderful the stories are, no matter how even historically true it might be, if it's not that connected to God's own voice, it doesn't have authority over our lives. I want you to see how Paul answered this question of how close are the words of the Bible connected to the words of God. I want you to see how he answered this question. So turn in your Bible to the passage that Mandy read earlier, 2 Timothy Three, and we're going to begin in verse 14. Before it goes on the screen again, I want to add to the context that Mandy already said. She did a really good job of setting that up. Paul is at the very end of his life. It's about AD 67. So think historically 30 years after Jesus died, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. The church is just starting. It's starting to take off like wildfire all around the world at this point in time. It's expanding. It's stretching. But Paul is in his last days. He's sitting in a prison. He's not well. He senses he knows that he will not be around much longer. In fact, History would tell us that very shortly after he wrote this letter to Timothy, maybe even a matter of months, he was executed. So he knows the end is near. He's writing to Timothy, who is a generation below him. 
And what he is essentially doing is he's telling this one that he has mentored, that he's invested in, that he's been sort of a, uh, not just a hero to, but, but a wise sage and a mentor. He's telling Timothy what he needs to know. And in verse 11 and 12, which we won't read, he's describing the persecution that he, Paul himself, had faced. And he says to Timothy, it's not getting any better. In fact, for you, it's going to be worse. And history would play that out. A great persecution was just beginning to face the early church. So Paul's saying, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to get worse even than it is now. But here, young man, is what you need to know. Let me read the passage again. Verse 14, you, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The couple of big things that Paul is saying to Timothy in these verses, the first is this, Timothy, stay close to your roots. Your roots run deep, Timothy. You'll find solidness there amidst the storm that is coming. You'll find an anchor there. He uses this phrase, sacred writings, which kind of conjures in our minds the same thing it would have in Timothy's mind, the ancient texts, the old texts texts. Paul is telling him, Timothy, you need to go back in order to find your way. Reminds me of one of my favorite Andrew Peterson songs. He's wrote a song to his son who's just entering this adolescent age, and he writes these words, keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. Those are wise words to a young man. It's in essence, don't despise the place that you've come from. Now, let's think about this, young people. I want to talk to you for a minute because I get it. I, I can stand on your side of the dock. There's a part of us as we get older that we, we, we need to find our own way. And I think that's something that God put in us. And there's a part of us that feels some angst and some tension about anything that would feel like we're going backward. But what I think is true and what I think Paul knows at the very end of his life is there something about your roots, the place where God planted you, that's important for you to come to terms with and find an anchor in? Those of you like me that were raised in a home that believed this book and believed that Jesus was who he said he was, don't take that for granted. I know that's not true across the board. Many of you are from other environments. But there's something for me as I've gotten older and I want to find my own way. There's this voice that's also calling me back. And I think to live in that tension, young people, is healthy and it's good. Do not despise the place that you came from, especially if it was rooted in the Word of God. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy what he needs to know about God's Word, the Scripture. All Scripture, Paul writes, is inspired by God. 
Now, I, this is one of those moments where I don't love the New American Standards translation. It's wonderful in most passages, but here I wish they had gone a different direction. Let me explain. The English words inspired by God probably make your mind think about an artist being inspired or a writer being inspired, or maybe you saw a sunset that was inspiring. That's not the sense of the Greek. The Greek word translated inspired by God is a single word. It's actually two words put together. It's theopneustos. We've got a slide where I'm going to explain what this means. Theopneustos is the Greek word. It's actually two words put together. Theos, which is God, and pneuma, which is spirit or breath. God breath. I like the idea of God breathed better than inspired by God. It's, I think it's a much more accurate way of conveying that. So the ESV and the NIV and other translations go this direction. They say all scripture is breathed out or God breathed. Breathed out by God is how the ESV translates that. I think that's what I want you to realize is what Paul is saying here is not that scripture is inspirational like on your coffee cup in the morning. It just helps you start your day. I think what Paul is saying is the origin of scripture is the voice of God. It's where it comes from. Now, here's why this matters so much. Remember our question, how closely are the words of this book tied to the voice of God? Paul's saying they are as close as his breath. That's how close. God has utter authority, right? We acknowledge that. Assuming he exists, which we believe he does, most of us in the room, he has utter authority, The scripture does because it's connected to him. And Paul is saying, here's how closely it's connected. Now, I want to sort of um, talk about this doctrine of inspiration because I think it can go sideways and, and people can start thinking differently about how maybe this worked than I think what actually happened. We're not talking here about passive dictation. In other words, don't get the idea that the biblical writers were just like in a trance, kind of, you know, just hearing this audible voice from the Spirit and they're just trying to keep up and it doesn't reflect any of their own personality and of their own life circumstance. That's not true. And and hopefully when you read through the Bible, you see personality come through. You see emotion come through that I think was genuinely part of the human author's. So how do you reconcile it? It's God's words, but it's also the author, human author's words. I think that's a tension that we need to hold. Much like we hold the tension between the incarnate Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, coming together, I think there's some element of Scripture that is similar to that. It's this dual authorship. We can't say it's God's words in the sense that the human did not put any of his own experience and emotion. Uh, In fact, I would even... um, point out the differences between the Greek of John and the Greek of Paul. John's Greek reflected his education, which was very little. It reflected his own life circumstance. He used a lot of imagery. He used a simpler vocabulary. Paul, man, he writes more like a college professor. He was more learned. It reflects his personality. So there's a lot of humanness in these words, but that doesn't mean they're not the voice of God as well. Now, you might wrestle with that. How could that possibly be? Here's one way it can be. If God created these authors, which we believe he did, if he put them in life circumstances intentionally, if he led them through every step of their life through his sovereignty, then he shaped them to think and say exactly what he wanted them to think and say at the moment that they put pen to parchment. He's sovereign. So I believe he was sovereignly shaping their circumstances, their personalities, their education, their vocabulary. They're his words. 
So God's word, the Bible would teach us, is authoritative because it originates from God himself. And he is authoritative. Now Paul goes on from there in the second half of verse 16 and all of verse 17 to go beyond the question of authority to address the question of purpose. Why do these authoritative words exist? What do they mean for us? And I want to reread just these parts. So all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We don't have the time this morning to define each of those terms that's listed in terms of teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. I do want to say this about it, though. Chances are when you hear those English words, there's probably not a whole lot of like positive emotion that stirs in you is maybe my guess. I don't like to be reproved. You know, I don't like to be corrected. I certainly don't like training. Right? It's not, I'm, not, I'm not like a gym rat, all right? I don't like these things, if I'm honest. So my first emotional response is like, I don't know if I want that. But then you see where Paul goes is he, he says, here's why you want that, Timothy. Here's why you need that, Timothy, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, for me, that still doesn't do it for me, right? That still doesn't make me like, yes, let me get into this book because I want to be adequate. <laughs> so what I did was I drilled down on, on, in the Greek and what the original language is, and I found that that word adequate could also be translated very legitimately, complete. Hmm. And then I looked a little bit later in this phrase, equipped for every good work, and I teased that out a little bit and saw other places where that idea is carried out in Scripture. And you know what it essentially means? You living out the true purpose that God created you for. The unique shape that he's made you, the unique work that he's called you to, whether that's a profession may be part of it, but even more than that, the relationships that he's put in your life, the people that he wants you to love, the people that he wants you to serve. So don't get this idea with a good work that it's like helping an old lady across the street and you know, checking the box, you know, although that, that's probably good for the old ladies. This idea of equipped for every good work is so that you can live out your full and true purpose. Who doesn't want to do that? One other thing as I discovered about this, this, the English words man of God, right, that makes us think of like this priest with the white collar, you know, this holy, like sanctified man of God. That's not what he's talking about here. First of all, he's using man in the more generic sense, so it could be man or woman. Second of all, this is not like just for pastors, although Timothy was a pastor. Paul's making a statement about anyone who is a child of God. You might use it this way, the Woman of God, the man of God, God's person, God's child, the one chosen by him. That carries this sense. So my summary or paraphrase of this part of Paul's words would sound something like this. See if this doesn't ignite a little bit more oomph in this English translation. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for all these things, right? The training, the equipping, etc. I won't read them all out. So that... God's man or God's woman may live out your true purpose to be fully human, fully alive, to thrive in the work that God has given to you. 
Now, that stirs a little something in me, and that's what's happening in this text. I didn't just make that up. That's what's here. You can translate it a lot of different ways in English, but Paul is calling Timothy to fully live into his shape, to be complete. So we need to ask this so what question, right? How do we live in light of this view of the scripture? Well, the simple answer is that we submit to God's authority over us as he speaks through his word. And I want you just to, I want that, that to hang with you for a minute. And I actually hope you're actually feeling a little bit of tension. Like, I don't know that I want to submit to God's authority over me. I, I hope you're feeling that a little bit. Let me say it this way. If you're not feeling the tension yet, maybe this will help you feel the tension. The, the simple application from this text is for you to be willing to say that as a transformed follower of Jesus Christ, I give up the right to live however I want to live. I don't do whatever I wish. I am no longer my own. I submit myself to the authority of God's word. Now, I desire to say that with integrity, but I also feel a tension as a rebellious, comfort-loving guy here's the problem although that's the right application we also have to acknowledge that we resist full submission to God and so I spent a little time this week thinking about why do I resist like what what, what is it in me and, and of course you could just say well it's my sinful nature it's your sinful nature and that's true but but I don't think that helps us just to say those words I want to dig down in our sinful nature a little bit more so I think there's two re- two reasons that I tend to resist God's utter complete authority over my life I think there's the same two reasons that you resist it reason number one we have a trust problem I have a trust problem you have a trust problem the reason I know you have a trust problem is because you were raised in a broken sinful world and you were brought up by broken sinful people And you have been exposed to and experienced and been wounded by brokenness and darkness. Now, I don't care what kind of great religious home you were raised in. I was raised in a great religious home, believe me. I still got wounded. You still got wounded. Is it too much to actually imagine that part of God's sovereignty in this whole process of redemption is his loving hand allowing us to be wounded by brokenness. But the result of our woundedness is we don't trust. And some of you immediately go to certain specific things in your life or just general things in your life. And there were things that you should have had that you didn't have. No set of parents in this room loved you wholly completely. They didn't. They didn't meet all your needs. Not everything. They may put a roof over your head. They may have even told you I love you, but there are parts of you that are still wounded. I know this because we live in a broken, fallen creation. We have a trust problem. Listen, it's good to acknowledge that. Now, some of you may be resisting and be like, well, you know, I wasn't really abused. I had a good upbringing. I don't really have a trust problem. I We all have a trust problem. I think step one is to acknowledge this. Now, verse 17 is telling us that the purpose of God's authority over you is you becoming all that you were made to be. You being unleashed to thrive. 
every good work, wholeness, completeness. We're going to state at the end of the service the, the two questions from the catechism, the Westminster Catechism we've been responding to each week. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I love the fact that enjoy is a part of that. There, there's a part of our fullness living out who we are created to be that is joy. We find in God our greatest joy, our greatest delight. We just don't know that all the time because we don't trust him. We trust him in some things. We don't trust him in other things. I trust him for things in my life. You know, I left a business career and trusted him and went to seminary to become a pastor. But there are other things in my life that I hold like this. Like, I don't know if I can fully trust you with this, God. My guess is you're the same way. We have a trust problem. Number two, and this is an interesting one, is we don't understand the true nature of freedom. Here's what our culture has taught us about freedom. And, and, and I mean like, like going all the way back, like American culture may be like the, the biggest um, um, definition of freedom in this way that, that, that has ever existed. It may be a negative thing about our culture, although there's much positive to the idea of freedom. But here it is. Our, our, our culture has defined freedom as the absence of restrictions. Okay, just broadly speaking, especially in this day and age. So let me out of any kind of um, oversight or, or any kind of control. Let me do what I want to do. Let me be who I want to be. Then I'm free. I want to be sensitive as I address this issue, but the, the epitome of this being expressed culturally right now is the idea of gender choice. Now, I, I know there are some people that are genuinely wrestling and struggling with this issue of their own identity as man or woman. But I also think part of what's going on is a society that says, I will not allow a God to even tell me whether I am male or female by my biology. I should have the right to choose that, shouldn't I? So there's all kinds of things going on out there. But here's the definition of freedom, the absence of restrictions. Now, let me give you a new definition of freedom. I think what the way that scripture would teach what freedom really is, is when you're released to be what you truly were designed and made to be. So let me give you an analogy of this. This actually comes from Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite preachers. He's at Redeemer Church in New York City. And he gives this analogy in one of his sermons about a fish. He says, you know, God made the fish to have gills. Purpose of gills is to breathe in the water. God made the fish to have fins. The purpose of the fins is so they can move efficiently and quickly through the water. Now, my family, we have five fish in a, in a little aquarium on our bookshelf in our family room. And imagine if I came home from work one day and, you know, my four-year-old daughter, Karis, had, had, had sort of rescued her fish out of the confines of the tank and put it on the sofa. That'd be a dead fish. And I had this imaginary conversation in my head with Karis. I said, Karis, what did you do? And she said, Daddy, the fish wasn't free. I wanted the fish to be free, you know. I, I, I wanted to liberate the fish from the confines of the tank. I don't think she'd use those words yet. <laughs> Now, what just happened to that fish? That fish was just liberated into fishy heaven. Because the fish needs the confines of the water. The fish needs the walls of that tank to help it be all that it was called to be as a fish. To breathe, to swim, to exist as God created it to exist. Fish in the ocean need the confines of the shore. Otherwise, they couldn't be fish. This is true freedom. 
True freedom is found in finding not no guidelines, no restrictions, but the right guidelines, the right restrictions, restrictions that allow you to be who you were designed and built to be. Now, who knows the answer to that better than the God who created you? Who knows who and what you were called to be more than he does? And who knows what restrictions, what guidelines, even what regulations and, and rules? Who knows what The walls of your tank need to be more than the God that made you, but he wants you to be within his guidelines so you can be a fully human person, so you can be fully alive. So verse 17 essentially says, submit to the authority of God's word so that you can live lives that are full and true, complete, who God intended you to be. So here's what we're called to do. We're called to stop resisting his authority We're called to trust him and submit ourselves completely to his word. But there's actually one more problem we have, and we're going to end with this. Not only do we have a trust problem, not only do we kind of misunderstand what freedom is really all about, but we have an inability problem. What I mean by that is if you're honest, you will never do it fully. Doesn't matter how you're feeling right now, what you're thinking right now, you will go outside those doors and at some point today, you will either consciously or unconsciously resist the authority authority of your creator. It's in you. The best you can do is try a little harder. Here's what I want to tell you. There is one who submitted himself fully and completely to the will of the Father and the will of God's word. There's only one. And I want to take you to the scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's agonizing over what God has asked him to do. God's word has come to him and Jesus is is just saying, Father, if there's any other way, Right? He knows he's going to have to go to the cross. He knows he's going to have to drink this cup of wrath that the Old Testament talked about. He's saying, take the cup away from me if there's any way. But then what does he come to? He comes to complete, full, utter submission. And he says, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus did what you and I can't do fully, completely. No matter how bad you may want to, you can't ever fully, 100% submit yourself to God. If you could, you wouldn't need a savior. You wouldn't need him. He did it because we couldn't. So here's what I want to say as we close. How do you trust God and how do you submit to his authority? It begins by believing the gospel. And maybe for some of you in the room, it's believing the gospel for the very, very first time. But many of you in the room, it's believing the gospel for the 28th time or the 219th time or the 1,000th time or the 1 millionth time. We need to believe the gospel over and over again. What do I mean by that? Well, it starts with believing the truth about yourself. Here's what I think is true about you, that there's a part of you, maybe small, maybe big, that doesn't want to submit to God. There's a part of you that loves your own authority more than God's authority. There's a part of you that is afraid of his will, that maybe he'll want you to do something you don't want to do. A part of you that doesn't 
actually trust enough. So this is why my older Christian friends, my younger Christian friends, and even my own heart would struggle with faith. I would also say this, trusting Jesus is actually the primary way that we submit to God's word. Remember last week when Michael was here, he, he, he taught that Jesus fulfilled the whole scripture. All of the word of God points to Jesus. It's, it's found in him. He fulfilled it. He embodied it. This is what the whole Bible, the whole word of God is pointing us to, is Jesus, who did for you what you cannot do for yourself. And yes, that means die, right? But that also means he submitted. He not only died the death that you deserved, he lived the life that you couldn't live. You were called to it and you couldn't. You needed a savior. So we don't just believe that one time, although once is enough, by the way, for our salvation, but we continually remember it. We continually believe it so that we don't go out through our lives just trying to do it a little bit better, trying to work a little bit harder to please God. No, the work has been done. We live out of a sense of gratitude. Now, I'm still calling you to a greater degree of trust. I'm calling you to some faith-driven, gospel-driven effort, if you want to kind of call it that way. But here's what this looks like. It looks a little bit like this. As you trust Jesus a little more today than you did yesterday, he becomes more and more of your friend. And you will submit yourself to him and his word a little bit more. And as you make one more little step of submission, here's what happens. He will prove to you that he is trustworthy. And when he proves to you yet again that he is trustworthy, you will want to take another little step. And this is how we grow in the gospel. This is how we grow in our faith. This is how the Holy Spirit is transforming us through little steps of trust. So the way that we're going to respond to this word of God this morning is by singing a song about trust. And this song is going to be an invitation for you to trust Jesus a little bit more in this moment than you did even when you walked in the doors this morning. And I want you to think hard as you sing these words. They're powerful, deep words about trusting Christ. Maybe it will help you as you sing to think about one area of your life that you're a little bit reluctant to release your grip on and allow God to have. Could you say about that thing in your life, I trust you, Jesus if you can, you're taking a step forward. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray. And while the band gets situated, and then we're going to sing together. Our Father, we love you. We trust you, but we don't trust you all the way. Help us with that, God. We would love to be able to sit, stand up here and say, I just trust God 100%. And the reality is nobody in this room 100% fully does. But we want to move a little more toward that. The song we're about to sing, God, is a reflection of a heart that's yielded to you. I, I want to sing these words with integrity. There's a part of me that, that, that still has things that I need to let go of. Would you help us, Father, for the words that we sing to become true, the words that we sing to become reality, that even the act of speaking them would do something as we respond to you in an act of faith, saying things, believing things that we long to be true about ourselves. Would you be glorified in that, God? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.